Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. Uh, we're joining you this early Friday morning. Uh, excited to have with us today Ms. Paige Sharp in our ongoing series, Women in Leadership. This is really an exciting moment for me. I love meeting new people. I love meeting people with incredible backgrounds and incredible histories. I have been eagerly awaiting for the opportunity to interview Paige as I've had the chance to work with her at the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. She's a, an employee of the, of the chamber and I'm on the board and I had the pleasure to meet her a couple of years ago and she is just a wonderful leader. She has a great deal of international experience and before we get to Paige, I'm going to be introducing you to her right now. Paige Sharp is the Develop Director of Development and Talent Initiatives for the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. She is a Pacific Northwest native. Paige is originally from Corvallis, Oregon, but spent most of her life in Castle Rock, Washington, a small town near Mount St. Helens. In 2013, she earned her Bachelor's in Business Administration degree with concentrations in marketing, international business, and HR management from Gonzaga University. After two years, after working two, for two years in Leadership Spokane, she spent three years living and working abroad, including two years as a community economic development volunteer with the Peace Corps in Nambia. Paige is a strong advocate for community development through programs promoting education and small business leadership. She sits on the Springfield City Club Board of Directors and volunteers with Casa of Lane County. Paige. Good morning, this wonderful, drizzly Friday morning in Oregon. How are you doing today? Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing pretty good. Well, I am very, very excited to have you here, to have you on the show, to hear your uh, leadership journey and your leadership story. Let's begin with first things first. Tell us something about you that is not on your bio. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a lot, uh, it's hard to choose something, but I will share, um, I am an avid baker. I really enjoy baking. It's a, it's a really great outlet for any stress relief or boredom. And, um, I like trying new recipes. Um, it's pretty fun. So in baking is your specialty cookies, pies, cake, <laughs> all of it. Uh, all of it. I love making cupcakes. Um, but I recently got into making donuts, um, this oh. fall. So you can, excuse me, apply for Cupcake Wars. Yeah, um, I think I'd be pretty good on those shows like Chopped. Wow, that's <laughs> a good deal. Now, what interested you, what sparked that interest in you to, to pick up baking more uh, in such a deeper fashion? Yeah, so actually I really enjoy baking because uh, it forces you to follow recipes. I think it's a really good representation of what chemistry is in real life, so I, um, this was back in high school uh, for a, a moment in time, I wanted to uh, become a chemist and um, that changed. That lasted for about a year, but um, it was it was pretty serious. I loved my chemistry classes. I love putting ingredients together and, and seeing that substance change. And um, also it tastes really good, so. Well, what happened in the year after preparing to yourself to be a chemist, what, sh what shifted? Uh, I had a class, um, I, it was my senior year of high school, but I was actually taking courses over at the community college um, through a Running Start program that Washington has. And I had an intro to business class um, and the teacher and I 
feel terrible. I can't even remember his name, but he, uh, he really changed the course of my education. Um, I decided, I decided that I wanted to go into business instead of chemistry. Good teachers will do that. They'll spark an interest in you that you didn't otherwise know was there, huh? Yes, for sure. Now, why is it you spend so much of your life in Castle Rock, Washington? You know, what this area up here, there's so many small, smaller communities in the Pacific Northwest. I know Washington State is beautiful. Why did your family go up there? And, and what was the interest uh, for you growing up there? My, um, so my parents met in Arizona and my dad was uh, in uh, fish and wildlife courses. He wanted to become a, a fish biologist and that's kind of hard to do down in the deserts. So they moved up to Oregon because um, we've got some pretty terrific programs up here. And so when um, I was three, we ended up moving after he graduated from master's uh, program up at OSU. We moved up to Washington, um, actually the Kelso Longview area up there. And then um, after elementary school for me, I'd love to say that it was my, my parents who, um, you know, forced us to move up to small town, Castle Rock, Washington, but it's actually, it's, it's my fault. Um, I, when I was six, uh, some friends of ours got us really into horses. And um, we had about an acre right along the park in um, Kelso, um, Washington. And um, we had two horses there and we sort of outgrew the space. So we ended up moving um, just like 10 minutes north to Castle Rock and bought 14 acres and um, that, expanded <laughs> the property that we had so we could have horses. And so how many horses did you all ultimately end up having? We had three. Um, and my, my dad actually was into riding with me. So I uh, had dressage lessons. We stabled uh, my horse out at the barn um, up there in Castle Rock. Um, and I took lessons and did dressage shows. And then I, we also did um, uh, endurance riding. And that was something that we did together. So he had a horse, uh, I had a horse and, um, we would travel all around the Pacific Northwest. Actually, some of my favorite rides were in Eastern Oregon, um, doing, you know, 25, 50, 75 mile endurance rides together. So that was a fun activity as a kid that I got to do with, uh, with my family. You said dressage? Yes. Dressage. So it's actually, it's an Olympic sport and, um, it's, a uh, it's not like English writing, but that's probably the closest thing I could compare it to. Um, it's all about form and control with your horse. And uh, it, it was a really great experience for me. And how long did you do that? Mm, I did that from the time I was six years old till I graduated uh, high school. And after I graduated, my family moved back down here and we got rid of the horses. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good long while that, that I was into that. Now, what did you enjoy? What did you learn about discipline, communicating with a horse? You know, horses, you have to have a lot of confidence when you work with horses. You were young, you adapted young, you developed this passion young, but as you grew from six to 18 years old, there's a lot of leadership lessons there. There's a lot of communication lessons. What did you learn in that process with your horse about how to manage the horse, manage yourself? Uh it's all a little bit about stubbornness and um, my mom is probably watching this right now and laughing at me but i always had a little bit of a stubborn and independent streak uh as a kid and i think that really helped <laughs> um with riding horses um 
you do, you have to, you have to be in control. You have to know what you want them to do. And, and um, you really have to be confident in, in what you're doing because they can tell if you're not, and uh, that can end very badly for you. In the movie, The Cowboys with John Wayne, I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. I'm a huge John Wayne guy growing up in Texas. He grabs the horse by the ear, he bites its ear to calm it down so one of the young children, one of the young boys becoming a cowboy can get on and mount it. I've talked to people that have had horses that do that. Is that, did you guys ever do that? No. <laughs> so I, and I didn't grow up doing Western writing. Um, so, you know, different, different writing cultures, but no, I, but the, the biggest thing is to get back on. So that's kind of the, you better show the horse you're in charge and you're in control and you do that by, um, if you fall off, you get right back on. If, if they take off, you put them right back in control. Um, and that's kind of how you show that you're in charge. I've never been a horse's ear. Have you heard of that? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> you should watch the movie, The Cowboys sometime with John Wayne, because he, he does that. And I know several people with horses, they, they still do that to, to show command to the horse. You do. We actually had a friend. So um, people will uh, treat their horses like pets, which is not something you should do, especially when they're young. Um, I think it's the same concept as with dogs. You know, they're going to get bigger and they're going to get bigger than you. And uh, they're going to walk all over you unless they have some respect. So, um, you know, we had uh, a friends who had them and they it's the way that you carry yourself, even when you're walking next to the horse, um, that matters. What, what was it about endurance riding with your father that you enjoyed so much? Where was this interest and passion coming from? Yeah, and endurance riding for anyone who doesn't know is long distance trail riding. Um, and I think that my my favorite part of that was, was getting out. You know, a lot of people will grow up camping and we did some of that, but um, this was sort of our way to get out in nature. And um, there's a lot of kind of freedom that comes with with long distance riding and um, have a lot of tenacity to, to keep going and to finish. And, um, and it's all about the training too. You know, we, I never rode to win. Um, it's not about coming in first. It's not like, it's more of a marathon. It's not a sprint, um, but finishing is key and making sure your horse is healthy uh, for the ride is, is critical. Paige, what did you learn about yourself? I have said Paige some questions for those that are watching, but what we're talking about now is not scripted at all. I'm in, in completely intrigued by this experience uh, she's talking about. What did you learn about yourself as you grew and mature as matured as a young lady, managing your horse, endurance riding, lessons? How did you handle fears and uncertain times? Yeah, there's... Um... And it's probably looking back, it's kind of a hindsight thing. Um, when you're in it, you don't realize it as much, but looking back, um, if I was ever gonna be a parent with a kid riding, I think that the fear um, that your kid's gonna get hurt is really, uh, it's, a, it's a real thing. I mean, I learned how to be, um, how to get right back up. Um, you know, we had some experiences uh, when I was jumping um, with a pony club and, uh, you know, my horse knocked me down into a wall, um, nearly ran over me and I crawled out of there. I was fine. Um, I wasn't scared, but man, my mom up in the stands was petrified. So um, 
I think looking back, what I, what I learned was how to be in the moment and not be, not be afraid. Be in the moment and not be afraid. What would have happened if, if you had shown fear to your horse? It really, they, they become afraid. Um, so if you have fear, if you are hesitant, um, then they'll be in charge. If you're not going to be in charge, they'll be in charge. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way of life. What's one of your happiest memories and one of your scariest memories in your endurance writing? Hmm. I think one of my happiest memories, um, was finishing my first 80 miler. That's the farthest I ever went. Um, and I think being able to say that I finished um, was, was a big moment for me. Um, scariest? I don't know that I can look back on a scariest time. Uh, I can look back though and say that there were some times that I did not want to continue. Um, we, I had borrowed a horse, wasn't my normal horse, but I had borrowed a horse and he was a pony. Uh, and <laughs> those are not as fun to ride long distance. They've got, you're posting twice as much um, and they can be pretty stubborn. Um, I also had, so I, I rode my dressage horse endurance riding and she was a little bit of a princess and it was not her, wasn't quite her thing. Um, so we were doing, you know, we, we were doing dressage riding, but on the trail and we actually had somebody stop my dad and I and say, oh, she looks so good on that horse. I thought I was going to murder that horse. She was being so bad, but, um, but you can't see that from the outside. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. You know, as developing people when we're younger, we have to have those experiences that prepare us for the future. And hearing this about you, to me, explains so much more about who you are and your personality. And I've watched you in several forums. I, I've listened to you address several audiences. And it, it explains now why you speak with such poise, because it's who you are internally. And I can see how these experiences helped you develop that sense of poise to be in that moment and to be unmoved. So good for you and good for your parents for helping you and allowing <laughs> you to do that. Paige, what did you like about growing up in a small town? I, when I when we moved to a small town, um, I didn't always like it, but looking back, I really was glad that we had the opportunity to have space. Um, I had never lived in a big city, you know, pretty small, small towns all my life. And then um, even going to college and, and being in the city, um, there's just a lot of noise. Um, and so I'm really grateful that I got to grow up in an area that, you know, we, we lived right next to a bunch of warehouser property. We had hundreds of acres of woods back behind us. Um, I got to get out in nature and go exploring. And um, that was a, that was a really great opportunity. And um, we actually, we just bought a house, um, up in Lynn County outside of Sweet Home. And it's, you know, 11 acres on the river in front of a bunch of warehouser property. And I think I always knew I wanted to go back to that uh, kind of small town out in nature um, feel because it's it's a great opportunity to sort of disconnect yourself from um, the noise of city life. And so living down in Lynn County at this stage and phase of your life, it's all about the baking and not about the horses. 
Yeah, horses will take over your life, Mark. They are very expensive. They take a lot of work. Um, and I give huge kudos to my parents who who did that for me um, growing up. And, you know, someday maybe we'll get horses again. But um, but right now, we, you know, I think we want to kind of leave the option open to, to get out and travel and get around. And um, you just can't do that when you've got animals at home. Yeah, my mother-in-law is a horse person, and so we've seen this play itself out with who's going to eat, who's going to do this, where you get the table, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, Paige, what were some of your, that you're aware of, you can look back, and what were some of your early leadership experiences? So, you know, thinking way early, um, you know, back in, like, high school, um, I took advantage of some of the opportunities that schools provide to get in, involved in clubs. And um, I was part of our FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America. I was part of our Honor Society Club. Um, my brother was in Boy Scouts and my dad was a scoutmaster. So I tagged along with them on a lot of stuff. And, you know, they do a lot of great volunteer work in the community too. So I got a little bit involved in there. Um, and that's kind of my early like civic leadership experience. Yeah, scouting is great. I, my mother was our den mother and my, my sister's Girl Scout leader. So I was a cub master and a scout master. I just love the leadership opportunities that scouting provides equally across the board to anyone who wants to get involved. So yeah. you were you were hanging out with your dad and your brother. Yeah. And tagging along, and I was tagging <laughs> along with, uh, I remember uh, back in the day when they would get their big shipments of cookies in the 70s, you had that we had a big old Bonneville with a massive uh, trunk, and me and my twin brother would be up front with with our mom, and there'd be five or six little Girl Scouts in their uniforms with their white gloves, and a trunk full of cookies, and we would just stop from house to house. So tagging along, tagging along, yep. fun. And they had a they had the like big candy bars that they would sell, and I can't even tell you how much. Like at the end of that season, my parents just bought the rest of the bars, so we didn't have to get out there and sell them. And we had a we had a lot of candy in the house. <laughs> Guilty as charged, did the same thing as a cub master and scout master sometimes. Yeah. So, Paige, who were some of the strongest leadership examples from your your youth? Uh, I. I would have to say that my dad, I mean, my mom and dad were really involved um, and I grew up watching them. We were very close as a family. My mom volunteered at my uh, school when I was in elementary um, kindergarten or Montessori school. And my dad used to take me out uh, with him to the, you know, he'd volunteer with Fish and Wildlife to do the fifth grade um, student trips out to the woods to kind of show them all the the fun fish stuff and plant stuff out there and so I would get to go see that um I got to go tag along with him to do like fish tagging and and um so kind of seeing seeing how they were involved in their work and their civic life um was pretty inspirational to me um I also I grew up hearing all kinds of stories um from my my grandfather on my dad's side um you know he was a really smart man, very artistic. They traveled um, a lot. Uh, and so I, I grew up hearing all about that. And I think that really influenced what I wanted to do, um, you know, after college. And, and that's why I got out and, and traveled. And that was a big influence on my life too. Now, what were some of the things that your mother did that influenced you specifically? 
She, uh, she's a great mom. She uh, had a really hard time um, when I was leaving the country. Um, and the fact that she still managed to be incredibly supportive, um, you know, looking back is, is really inspirational to me. Um, and she was always really engaged in our, in our, um, you know, neighborhood and she has no problem talking to people. She can, uh, meet somebody in a grocery store checkout line and know their whole life story by the time you get to the end of it. Uh, and so I, I kind of, I look to her as an example when I'm, um, you know, in my role here at the chamber too, getting to know folks, getting to know what they do, um, trying to emulate her, her influence there. <laughs> Yeah, my mom was the same way. She could get your life story out of you in about two minutes. I think it's a Midwest thing, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> could be. <laughs> now, why did you choose Gonzaga? I uh, went to Gonzaga because I was looking for an education opportunity where I got I would get to know my teachers. So I was looking for small class sizes. Um, and I actually had a friend, I hadn't looked at a Gonzaga. I didn't grow up religious. I wasn't looking at a, a religious school. Um, but I had a friend who is a year older than me and she, um, she went to Gonzaga and she told me, she said, Paige, this is a great university. Um, the professors are amazing. The classes are great. Um, I think that kind of small university feel was exactly what I was looking for, for my undergraduate degree. Um, they had a really great business program. Um, they had a really great science program, which is actually what I was looking at when I uh, went when I went to the school. But um, it was fun. I, I got to kind of move to a bigger city, and um, you know, relative to what I had been used to at the time, uh, and uh, and it was a it was a really good school. Um, had really good advisors. They had really good scholarship opportunities. Um, it kind of all just fell into place, and I'm glad I went there. I don't know anything about Gonzaga. So it's a what kind of school is it? You said it's a religious school. It's a Jesuit school. So I did not know what Jesuits were uh, until I went there. Um, but as someone explained to me there in the tent of Catholicism, uh, Jesuits are kind of near the door. Um, they have their own uh, thoughts and, and feelings and they're um, really big into education. So um, you know, the school was founded um, a couple hundred years ago and, and by a group of Jesuits who uh, really wanted to make education available to our youth. Interesting. I, I had no idea that that was the foundation of the school. And we, we know that they traditionally have a really good basketball program. Yes. <laughs> That's how people here know them for sure. <laughs> yeah. So Paige, what is Leadership Spokane? And was that your first job assignment post college graduation? So I actually worked there as a paid intern during school. Um, I I was a marketing intern there, and it is a it's a nonprofit in the area dedicated to civic leadership development. So um, it's actually very very similar to our leadership Eugene Springfield program here. The difference is instead of being run by the chamber um, as a as a program, it's um, it's its entire own nonprofit. So um, they do the same leadership courses. Um, it's all about getting to know your community and kind of how. Um, everything integrates together and moves our community forward. Um, and, and then there's a lot of opportunities for alumni who've gone through the program to come back and network and um, do kind of follow up leadership um, 
trainings and programs and talks and um, got to know a lot of community leaders that way. Um, and kind of, it, it ended up being um, interesting because I, I didn't know about the Leadership Eugene Springfield program here until I started at the chamber. And, um, and I didn't realize that chambers of commerce traditionally run those leadership programs. But I think that my experience there really helped uh, when I came here to understand the why behind um, why we do that. And what were some of the things you discovered about the why this type of program is necessary and the types of programming involved are critical to developing strong leadership? Yeah, it, and it really is. It's really critical. And um, part of this comes out a lot when you ask people what they got out of the program. Um, and, and a lot of times it's, I grew up here, I thought I knew all about the community and it turns out I didn't. And you don't know what you don't know. And I think that these kinds of programs really help kind of pull back the veil there and, and say, this is how we work together. This is how our public safety integrates with the economic development, integrates with education, integrates with arts and culture in our area. Um, and unless you've really got um, somebody showing you how those are connected, I think it's it's easy to, to miss that, all the behind the scenes work that we do to make a community function. Was there a program similar to Leadership Eugene, uh, Eugene Springfield as far as time frame and types of programming and settings? It was, yeah. We, um, you know, you do your kind of kickoff day where it's all about team building and getting to know your cohort, and then you're bringing folks around to, uh, you know, a cohort of community leaders around to different um, businesses and uh, locations and kind of teaching them all about, um, you know, each of the kind of integrated aspects of your community. Um, their program has gotten a lot larger. I think it's, um, I think it's like 60 people in a cohort there. And I, I'm um, fond of our kind of 30 person cohort. I think you get to know folks a little bit better, but um, one of the really, the biggest things that people get out of the program too is just the, the connections with their class members. So, um, you know, those, those are a lot of times people, cause we, we do a lot to um, select a cohort. We get like, you know, over 60 applications and we're, we're whittling it down to 30 people. And so we do a lot to, um, to make sure that that cohort is is diverse. Um, so a lot of times these are people you wouldn't have met um, in your normal kind of social circles or work circles. Um, you get to meet a lot of different people that way and, and they can be friends and they can be, um, you know, later on in life colleagues um, maybe and, and they'll just, they'll really be with you um, kind of throughout your, your time here in the community. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit more. So I'm going to cut off this part of the conversation because I want to tie it in a little bit later with your chamber experience. I want to hear about the three years you spent in Nambia with the Peace Corps, how you made that connection, why this opportunity was so important to you, what did your family think of their 21-year-old daughter moving abroad alone? You gave a little insight as to your mom. And the year you spent after university in Istanbul teaching English for a private company before signing up for the two years in the Peace Corps. Paint that picture for us. Put that all together and let's talk about, because this is a big, big, big deal in your professional, even if you don't see it that way, when you're in it that young, 
but just the the opportunity to grow is so significant. Yeah, I I don't even remember the t- the moment that I realized I wanted to travel. Um, I just kind of always remembering wanting to, and, and again, that came a lot from um, you know hearing stories about my grandfather and my dad's youth. I mean, they're from Canada; they moved to Australia all before they actually ended up moving to the U.S. So. Um, I got to hear a lot of interesting stories about traveling and um, never really got to do it as a kid, um, you know, except for visiting family in the States. So uh, I always knew that I wanted to, to get out and travel. Um, I did have an opportunity in high school as part of um, an ambassador program to head over with a group of other, you know, 16 year olds to Europe and um, kind of experience that. But, uh, you you know, a couple of weeks in Europe with a huge group of American kids is not really um learning about the culture necessarily. I think it's more kind of just that foot in the door um, and definitely inspired me to, to want to um, go live abroad. Um, there's such a huge difference between visiting abroad and living abroad. Um, and so when I was in college, I knew I wanted to apply for the, the Peace Corps. I thought that was a really great way um, to, to do some community service work, to get some really great um, professional development experience over there. And they have, um, they have business and economic um, positions for volunteers. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I applied uh, for Peace Corps at the end of my senior year of, of college. And I did my interview and I thought I was going to be going and I just didn't hear back from them. And I didn't hear back from them. And I said, well, I really want to travel. So I um, ended up signing up the company over in um, in Turkey uh, to teach English. Cause that's, again, that's kind of another way to travel. And I had gotten my um, certificate uh, to teach English as a second language in college as sort of just a backup uh, way to travel. So uh, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a great training program, um, certificate, certificate program that Gonzaga offered and I was able to do it as part of my classes. So um, it's just sort of an easy backup uh, way to, to get out and travel and see the world. Um, so I, signed up. I went over to Istanbul uh, by myself at 21 years old. And that was, um, again, that was for a private company. So it was me booking my own plane ticket, figuring out my own apartment situation, um, you know, in a foreign country. And they, you know, it was, it was for a company that hires English teachers from abroad. So they do, you know, they pick you up at the airport and they drop you off at your um, your apartment and they kind of make sure you've got some, um, you know, where to go-ish. Uh, but there's a lot of figuring out figuring that out on your own and asking questions. And, um, and I think the, the scariest part for me actually was um, learning how to use the public transportation over there. Cause that's a city with like millions and millions of people. And I um, had somebody that I was a roommate of mine show me um, how to use the Metro bus. And they're just like packed in there like sardines. And I think the doors open and close like three or four times before it was like, Oh, I have to get onto that. It's not going to get better. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of learning um, that happened over there. And um, I sometimes wonder how I uh, didn't make more mistakes um, as a 21 year old in a foreign country um, trying to live on my own. Um, but then after um, a few months there, I did end up hearing back from Peace Corps and they said that there was a position um, open. And at that point, because I was teaching English, they tried to get me to do um, to be an English teacher as a Peace Corps volunteer, which is um, a great opportunity. But I kind of put my foot down and I said, this teaching isn't actually what I want to do. I want to be a business volunteer. And so I um, ended up 
having to get my medical clearance um, while I was living in, in Turkey, which isn't something that volunteers for Peace Corps normally do. And that was um, one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life, trying to, to get that done um, in Istanbul. And um, they told me they were sending me to Namibia uh, for two years. Um, and I had a month after I got home from Istanbul um, to you know get everything ready and, and before I headed out. Um, and my, my two years in Namibia, actually, um, after having spent a year in Istanbul, doing that on my own, kind of figuring that out on my own, um, it was kind of funny to then be doing it through this federal, um, program because they, you know, they make sure they buy your plane ticket for you. They make sure, you know, what airport you're flying out of and into, and they pick you up and there's a hotel you stay at and it's like a staging um, place where they get all the volunteers together and they take you on a bus to the, you know, JFK to fly you out. And um, they set you up with a three month training program and a host family. And it's all very coordinated and um, it's still, still challenging, of course, but um, you're not doing it on your own quite as much. So it was a lot, it was a lot less scary to, to have to go um, over to Namibia than it was for me to go over to Istanbul. Well, that's really interesting, uh, the preparation phase, ensuring your success as much as they can, ensuring preparation in a way that's responsible and practical and reasonable so that you have a sense of safety uh, going forward. I have a sub-question. Your English as a Second Language program, what was that like? How long was it? What Was it just like teaching English? Because what did you have to learn? So uh, for the certification program, you mean? Yes, ma'am. So that was um, through the education school at Gonzaga. They had a, an ESL program. So I took night classes um, to get my certificate. And it was um, really useful. I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that they make people do that. Because a lot of times companies will be like, oh, you speak English. We'll hire you to teach English. Um, but I thought this was really helpful because uh, I did not go to school to become an educator. You know, I, I didn't know anything about um working with students or creating curriculum or developing classroom plans or projects or, you know, making um, class plans that were engaging for students. And so this training program kind of helps you, uh, like it's like a crash course on how to do that. Um, and then that's, there's a lot of learning as you go to once you get over there, but um, it did set me up to kind of know how to create, um, you know, class plans and and projects that would be engaging for kids. Um, I will say one thing that it did not prepare me for was um, classroom management, um, which is <laughs> really critical uh, thing for the classroom. And it is quite difficult when you're teaching a class of second graders who don't actually speak English and all you speak is English um, to be able to, to manage that classroom. And I, I will say, I don't think I did a very good job of that. Um, so that is kind of, that's one of those things where, I mean, hats off to all of our teachers who do manage that every day. Um, you can't be an effective teacher if you don't have the skills to manage your classroom and your students and, um, you know, have those kind of relationships with them and the respect from your students, um, no matter what age group they are. So, um, and, you know, that's kind of, I, I realize that's not my, it's not my niche. That's not my strong suit. Um, I'm never going to be a teacher, um, but I have tremendous respect for what they do for sure. So you were in Namibia? Yes, Namibia. Not Namibia, Namibia. Okay. Okakarara? Yes, Okakarara. 
Okakarara Vocational Training Center. What was that? What types of programs were available to local participants in that area? Uh, now, you were providing English as a second language. Did they give you any language skills uh, for the language they speak? And did they do any classes to help you prepare for the cultural experience? So I actually was not teaching English in Namibia. So I taught English in Istanbul. Um, and that's uh, where I really decided I didn't want to be a teacher. And then I was a business volunteer um, in, in Namibia. So um, sort of an economic development volunteer. So they, they sent us to, you know which program you're going to go to. Once you get there, you get in your training program. They kind of tell you what you're where your project is going to be. And so mine was at the um, Okakarara Vocational Training Center. So that's a, it's like a vocation, vocational school that we have here in the US. So they've got, um, you know, carpentry programs, welding programs, um, office administration, hairdresser. They had like 10 trades um, there that they they taught. And it was in Okakarara, Namibia. So it was um, a very small borderline town um, village, but uh, the school was definitely the biggest thing there. Um, it was a, hostel school. So, uh, you know, kids stayed on site. Um, the teachers is actually, it was interesting because, um, each of those centers is located, uh, there's seven in the country and they're, uh, funded, um, primarily by the Namibian training authority. Uh, and each of the centers has similar training programs. And, um, and these were the, the first time that Peace Corps had partnered with these schools. So, um, there were seven volunteers from my cohort um, that were sent to each of these seven schools and we were the first Peace Corps volunteer to be there. Um, and what Peace Corps tells you is that it's not necessarily expected that you're going to, you know, get there and make a huge difference and complete some huge project. It's more, you're, you're there as the first American Peace Corps volunteer to really set the stage for the second volunteer. Um, so it was, um, it was interesting and it's sort of making your, your own way and figuring out what your, what your skills are, what their needs are and kind of where that, um, where those two meet. All right, so now I understand that vocational training center was not in Turkey. So that's, no. where, that's where I was confused. Okay, so I appreciate that you were the original seven going to these, uh, original group going to these seven schools the first Peace Corps volunteers, your job was really to set the stage for the second group of volunteers. Man, that is really fantastic, Paige. That's really a great story as to the confidence that the Peace Corps put in all of you that you had to develop within yourselves. What were you learning about culture and people and how to effectively interact with them going from the different schools? You said it was a hostel, uh, kids live there. And so what was that like? It was interesting and it's, um, you know, I lived in a, in a house off campus, but near the school, it's a small, it's a small town. Um, and uh, I was teaching some workshops for students. I had kind of open office hours for anyone in the community who wanted to um, like business plan, someone to look over their business plan and, and give them um, ideas or feedback. Um, so I got to see some pretty creative business plans out there. Um, it was, the Peace Corps does train you. So they have like a two to three month training session before you go to your site. So you're all kind of together. There's some language training that's involved. There's some cultural training that's involved. Um, 
but you don't, you just don't know what you don't know. And I, I, I learned how, um, things are, things are done differently in different locations. Um, you know, here, I, I think I was writing a, um, kind of a grant proposal for some dollars for, um, an incubation, uh, hub at the, at the center. And, um, ended up getting approved, but I worked with center management on it. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, we need to find the price of, uh, you know, what it would cost to get this machine. Well, in the US, that's pretty easy. I know where to get that stuff. I know how to find it. I know where to go online to find prices. Um, in Namibia, it's not the same way. So I kind of had to rely on other people to, um, to be able to provide some of those like cost estimates for things can't just look it up online. Um, you know, you have to know kind of which companies have those and it's a, it's a lot more limited. It's a much smaller um, country and, a, you know, much kind of fewer industries there. Um, so that was, that was definitely an interesting experience kind of figuring out how to do that in a, in another country um, where no, that you don't have the same tools um, that we have here. So for those of us who have never been to these locations, are they, I'm going to ask my, probably, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I'm going to ask an ignorant question. Are they, is the proper term underdeveloped as far as internal infrastructure, internet, things of this nature? What was it like back then? Um, so Namibia has an injury and it's, uh, one of those things where it's different depending on what country you go to. Um, you know, I had friends that I met in uh, Peace Corps Namibia who went on to do two years in another country. Um, and so hooking up with them afterwards and hearing about their experiences in places like, um, um, you know, Eastern Europe, it's much, much different. Um, so for us, it was um, a little bit underdeveloped, but not, not so much underdeveloped as um, most of the industry is owned by um, companies outside of Namibia. So South Africa owns a lot of the industries there. China owns a lot of the industries there. Some other, um, you know, like the big money-making ones, mining, um, a lot of the, like all of the supermarket chains are South African, not actually Namibian. And so I think that that, that was a huge um, factor as to why their economy works the way that it does. Their dollar, the Namibian dollar is tied directly to the South African RAN. Um, the, the country itself is fairly new, uh, early nineties is when Namibia was formalized as a country. Um, so they're very reliant on their neighbors to the South uh, in South Africa, because they're, as the RAND um, goes up and down, so does the Namibian dollar. Um, and, and, and yeah, again, a lot of those big industries are owned by, um, by South Africans, not, not Namibians. Um, so entrepreneurship was actually something that the uh, local government was pushing hard for in Namibia, which um, I think is a, is a good direction um, for them to be investing. Uh, so small business and making sure that skills and training were um, funded um, for anybody who wanted them. Um, obviously still a lot of barriers for people to access those trainings because there's like seven training centers in the whole country and um, you know one university. Actually, by the time I left, there was two. Um, so there's, you know, limited, but, um, limited opportunities, but the, but the government was really working on creating access for students to those training programs. So, um, kind of boosting local talent essentially so that we could see, um, they had a lot of 2030 goals in there too. So, um, a lot of work being done, you know, over the next decade, um, to make sure that they're setting themselves up for success as a country. 
So we have a mayor and city council and chief of police and fire life safety. What's it like for a government in a developing country from your observations? How did it work? Do you think it was successful? Um, yes and no, I think there's um, still quite a bit of corruption, um, not as much as in other countries for sure. Um, but when you're talking about like a national level and party politics play a lot into that too. And, um, and tribalism plays a lot into party politics there. So there's kind of a lot of like, um, you know, and underneath the, <laughs> uh, the surface there that uh, is really playing into how their local politics play out. But um, at a local, local level, yeah, we had a mayor, he was great. He was actually a carpentry instructor at the vocational training center. Um, so he you know, knew a lot about local industry um, in our town. Um, great guy, um, did a lot of work uh, to, to make the community better. Um, and we had a local police offices. Um, it's just it's a little it's just a little bit less um, structured, I think, than we see here sometimes in, in the US. So if you're looking at like Springfield City Council and city government, um, it does look very different over there. Interesting. Now, what type of foreign languages did you learn to speak in any in any at any level in your travels? So in Istanbul, it was Turkish and in Namibia, it was Oji Herero because I was going to live in Okakarara with the Hereros. Um, and I learned very little. Um, I <laughs> Embarrassed to say, uh, no, languages are just not my strong suit. I wish. Um, you know, I had really good friends over there who just picked up languages. I mean, they'd already learned a language, and I think that makes it a little bit easier sometimes to, to pick up a second language if you've already um, learned one. But, um, you know, I knew enough to sort of ingratiate myself into society, uh, say hello and good morning, and where's this, and how can I find this, and, you know, can I get the bill, um, that kind of stuff. So I, I did, I learned some like very basic conversational um, language, and they, they do give you language training. Um, I think something that a lot of people don't know actually is that um, the uh, official language uh, in Namibia is English. Um, they have uh, tribal languages, so that's kind of what we learned depending on where we were going to be located. We learned the local tribal language, but um, especially at the vocational training centers because the instructors are coming from all over the country and so they're um, a very diverse um, teacher set in, in the um, school their common language was English. And so there was just a lot of English spoken and I, um, I never really picked up any, um, a lot of Oshihororo. You have a friend from Uganda and they, he speaks English cause that's the official language but he speaks seven different tribal dialects. Just. Yeah, and I've met people who, who can speak like 10 languages and dialects and um, they're brilliant people and they're really good at learning languages. Now, <clears throat> what did you enjoy most about the new culture you're exposed to at that time? And how did that help you form your leadership perspective? So from a, from a leadership experience, I think what I learned was just working with different people. Um, you know, sometimes you can get especially if you're in a community um, where you know everyone and you know how everyone works, you can get a little bit complacent. Like, you know, you know how to talk to them, you know how to get stuff done. Um, that changes when you go overseas. And it's not 
always super obvious either. You know, it's just, um, there's just a different way of doing things. And, and um, you know, sometimes it's timing, sometimes it's skill, sometimes it's a respect thing. Um, just how, how do you get stuff done and making sure that you're doing it in a way that um, kind of mirrors what they're used to instead of what you're used to. Um, so I, I, I learned a lot there. Um, you have to listen um, to what, to what that other kind of cultural norms are. Um, Cause I mean, that is how they do things. Um, and I'm over there to share how we do things but also to learn um, how to really integrate the two um, to make something happen. Um, from a personal perspective, I'd say my favorite part about um, moving abroad and visiting abroad, um, really all of it is the food. So that's what I really enjoyed. I love traveling for food, um, especially in Turkey. They have the best food. I would go live back there simply for the food. <laughs> um, in Namibia, um, I didn't enjoy the food as much, but I definitely learned a lot about food um, from a cultural perspective. So my um, first, uh, during training, um, we had a we had a event for the trainees and their host families where um, we cooked the traditional food of each of the tribes that we were going to be staying with. So I um, I cooked the Herero food and they eat all of the goat. Mark, they eat all of the goat. <laughs> so I got to clean out some intestines to cook. That was an interesting experience for me. I've also eaten goat stomach. Um, learned how to do things like cook goat rectum. Um, I mean, there are things that I never would have done here. Um, but I'm really glad that I did get to, to go over there and to do that. Um, they have uh, fat cakes, which are really good. So that's, and they're like donuts, but they're this like fried dough ball. You can get them on the side of any street and any village that you're in. Uh, that was, that was fun. I, um, Wish I had the patience to make them here. We got like a, a cookbook um, from Peace Corps, kind of like local recipes. Um, and that was in there, but it's one of those things where you make it in like a five gallon bucket and you have to let it sit overnight. And um, I'm just not gonna do that, but I do miss those. Those days are good. Well, I've eaten a lot of goat in my day, but I'm not eating goat stomach and I'm not eating goat <laughs> rectum. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> What was the catalyst moment when you just, when you decided to return home from overseas? I always knew I was going to return home. Um, I love Oregon. I always knew I was coming back to Oregon. Um, you know, my when I graduated high school, my family moved back here, so they they were here in the kind of Corvallis, Albany area. Um, I missed them a lot, um, and you know, it's not quite the same to talk on Skype once a month with your family than it is to actually be able to see them in person. Um, so I always knew I wanted to, to come back here and I, um, I realized that as much as I loved my abroad experience, I did want to start my career over here. And so I was kind of at a point in my life where it made sense for me to, when I was done with Peace Corps, um, to come back here and, and find a job and kind of kick off my career here locally. And I needed trees. I, uh, I spent two years in the desert and I was dying to see a forest again. <laughs> it's interesting how even the natural environment, the natural conditions uh, in regards to geography uh, can have such an impact on us, isn't it? 
It is. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, being here in the Willamette Valley with the woods just kind of feels like home and it never, um, it never, I never was in a space where I was like, I could spend my whole life here, um, abroad, but I do feel that way in Oregon. So. Well, thank you for bringing that up regarding the desert, because until you made that comment, I never even considered what the topography of those areas must have looked like. When you mentioned Istanbul, I'm thinking, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all the people, all the traffic, how scary that must have been for you, because I would have been scared. <laughs> and then Namibia thinking, probably rolling blackouts, poor electricity, not good water systems, not good plumbing systems that had to be, I'm just assuming I shouldn't, but that's what I was thinking. They actually have um, really great uh, water infrastructure there. They uh, have a drought, so um, not great water resources, but as far as their infrastructure goes, uh, um, it's it's pretty terrific. You can drink the tap water there, and then it's not the case in most Peace Corps countries. Um, you know, they give us like iodine tablets. So a lot of people have to have filters, boil their water, but in Namibia, nope, you can drink the tap water, um, which is pretty incredible. But um, yeah, as far as like the housing goes, it's a lot of cinder block housing. Um, so I, you know, I just kind of missed home a little bit. The, the desert, I, we did have um, blackouts, but you know, let's be honest, I have those here too in Lynn County. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, had the electrical box on the outside of the house and I would go switch it back on and it usually didn't stay off for too long. Um, I do now appreciate hot water more than I ever had before and, uh, you know, washer dryers. So I spent a year with cold water um, before they fixed my water tank. And then I finally got hot water in my shower, but um, a year and, and in the high, it's really a high desert. So in the wintertime, it's quite chilly. Um, man, I was freezing. Um, and the, you know, I didn't have a dryer for like three years. Um, I was hanging drying my clothes in both uh, Istanbul and Namibia. Um, so that's, those are kind of things that I'll, I'll try not to take for granted ever again here. <laughs> yeah, no, when I was in Panama in the army, uh, they didn't have hot water initially. And you think, oh, it's Panama, it's the jungle. It's what's cold water until you have to shower in it every day. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what was your first job upon returning from overseas? And how were you able to encapsulate those learning experiences into a marketable asset? That's a really good question. And it's something I didn't really consider until I'd come back, how hard it would be to find a job. So I had very little job experience before I left to go overseas. And when I came back and was applying for jobs here, um, I think there, there's a lot of people who don't respect the work that can be, you know, the experience that being abroad can give you. So I, um, but hey, I'm actually pretty grateful that some of those companies didn't hire me because I think, um, you know, the culture of fitting in to an organization is, is really important to um, being happy in your job and your work life. Um, and so I uh, actually, the first job after I returned back was here at the Springfield Chamber. Um, and I am, well, I will forever be grateful that Bonnie, uh, our CEO and Robert Killen at the time were the two who hired me. And, um, you know, Bonnie herself has a lot of experience overseas, far more than I do, um, and definitely recognized um, that that it is, it is work experience to go work overseas. You just have to have it here in the U.S. to know, to know how things work. Uh, let me see here. 
you know, I'm just thinking about what you said about Vani's overseas experience too, because your title is Development Director and Talent Initiative. Yeah, I'm a Director of Development and Talent, um, which is just uh, you know a way of saying that I oversee a lot of our workforce and talent development initiatives. So it's our you know our work ready program with students, making sure that they have access to education opportunities and training opportunities to put them in our um, local workforce um, upon graduation or upon completion of whatever post um, high school training that they have. Uh, and then I oversee our leadership programs as well. Plus a whole lot of other stuff that you know we do because we're a, a nonprofit and a small staff and do quite a bit of work. But um, those are kind of the main points that I oversee. First of all, I apologize. I, I don't know why I keep getting your title wrong, but ever since I, I just get a t I get tongue twisted with it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but I see your your experiences page overseas, your travel matching up with your title and the prerequisites of your title. Because myself, having been in the military, traveled abroad uh, several years, training with people from different countries, different militaries, uh, having to learn different languages and different places and different cultures, and the asset that it can be, and the strength that it gives you. I just wanted to make the observation that I think that title is a perfect match for your skill set and that your skill set and your experiences are a perfect match for that title and for the chamber with respect to how your position has been designed with the skill set that you have, with the skill set that you brought back from all of your overseas experiences. So I'm happy. The other companies didn't hire you either. And Vani had the chance to interview you with her international uh, travel and training experiences. And you've been able to create this profound working relationship at the chamber with her. Because I see you one day having her skill set in such a way that we're going to have to let you go travel and be this she is the epitome of leadership to me and you are another incredible example of tremendous leadership but i can see one day that that day will come where you're going to be managing far more than something uh, that we're doing together now i just wanted to say that because my deep respect for you and it's very obvious that that's who you are thank you that is a it was a really good fit to find this position. I mean, I'll be I didn't know what a chamber of commerce was before I applied to work at the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. And um, in this role, you get you get to know a lot about the community. And and um, I have done work with students in the past um, training programs and creating local talent. And um, it's it's one of the most important things I think a community can invest in is their local is their local talent. And, um, you know, that really comes at all levels, but it's an enjoyable job for me. Um, and um, I feel like I've gotten a lot out of it too. I've learned a lot on the job here as well. Now you're on the leadership, you manage the, for Springfield, the Leadership Eugene Springfield program. Part of that's part of your role as, as the program development there at the chamber. You also help manage the steering committee. What is it about leadership that intrigues you so much? And what is it you enjoy about our program, Eugene Springfield program, and working with the steering committee and all those other leaders? 
So what intrigues me about leadership um, really at a fundamental level is the choice that people make to be leaders. So it is not, I mean, you could as an individual go about your day, working at your job, doing what is required of you, um, you go home to your family. And that is, um, that is a absolutely a respectable way to spend your life and, and thing to do. Um, and then there's that next level. And I, I don't know if it's because of my um, position that I get to meet all these people or if our community really does just have an abundance of leaders in it, but I um, have been really inspired um, by those in our community who make the choice to just do more. Um, and it's not for themselves um, necessarily, although it is um, it is beneficial to, to be in those um, positions and making choices for our community. Um, but it, it's a lot of work um, and it's a lot of work that you don't get paid for. And a lot of times you don't get credit for, um, but they do it anyways, um, because that's what's right um, for our community. And there are so many people spending so many hours volunteering, even for our organization, um, that I am just really inspired by every day. And for, um, what was your question about the leadership Eugene Springfield program, Mark? Yeah, working with the other, the leaders on the steering committee, uh, what is it you enjoy about that? Yeah, so our steering committee is um, all past graduates of the program. Um, they come from all different industries and, uh, you know, career backgrounds, and they've uh, come together. The, the program itself is about getting um, our graduates out into the community to, to, you know, be leaders, to get engaged and involved in the community. And so when that involvement that they choose is to come back and, and um, give back to the program, I think that that's... Um, that's pretty incredible. Um, it's a it's a lot of work. They they pick a class. There's you know two to three uh, folks from each from the steering committee who plan each class day. Um, it's um, a really great opportunity for me to get to work with those folks on um, putting together um, an agenda for our you know current cohort to um, to learn about the community in a very short amount of time. So it's really what are the the most important things that we can put in front of them. And how do we inspire them to then um, be able to or empower them to be able to, to follow up on those items that they um, are really interested in. And so uh, being able to do that in um, what now with our online format is essentially two, three hour sessions. Um, it's challenging, but um, I, I think the steering committee has done a really good job. Speaking of that, what kind of conversations did all of you have together in this time of this pandemic? to make sure that this program went forward successfully as planned and to ensure that it was impactful and meaningful? It's a good question. And we um, had to switch to virtual um, right at the end of um, our last class. So uh, they had two sessions that we, and, and there was so much up in the air and um, you know nobody quite knew what was gonna happen in two weeks, let alone um, two months from then. So, uh, you know, this is back in like uh, March of last year because the, the class graduates in May. So April and May would have been their last two classes. Uh, and we had to kind of put a pause on that and say, well, let's wait and see what happens. We wanna get you guys together for your last two classes. Uh, we postponed it for two months before we decided, you know what, we need to make this happen for them. So we switched to an online format. Uh, and I think that there was some 
some learning there about what works and what doesn't. Uh, you know, we uh, just in terms of how do you make online learning engaging, and so we were able to put the same resources in front of them, but there was just a little bit less engagement um, with speakers that you get online. And then um, we had kind of spread it out so that it was like two hour sessions over the course of a month. Um, and I, and that just created a little bit of um, disconnect, I think from, um, from the purpose of the days, which is really to make those connections between, um, you know, the organizations that are speaking to you, the initiatives they're talking about, um, that the, making those connections is, is really important. Uh, and so we, as a steering committee, um, they, they made the decision um, to kind of, you know, tweak and alter how that looked for this, um, this current cohort, uh, which is in place now. And, and one of the biggest concerns that the steering committee had is, um, is how our cohort is making those connections amongst themselves in this format. So, um, you know, there's a there's a class project that we ask the class to do every year and it um, really kind of forces you to engage with a group of people to set a goal and uh, make decisions together um, and and come up with something tangible at the end of that. So it's really about you've got this frame of time, you need to decide what you want at the end of that and then kind of make it happen as a group and um, it's it's a really great um, learning opportunity for the for the cohort that sometimes is not quite understood until they've gone through the project and presented. They're like, oh, I get why you made us do that now, even though it was very uncomfortable in the moment to have to be doing those things. And it's, it is challenging to get a group of strangers together uh, and have them have them come together and make a decision and, and um, follow through on that and have something come out of it. So um, that becomes even harder when you're online. Um, and so there was some uh, formatting things that as, you know, the staff um, from the Sprinkle Chamber and from Eugene Chamber that we recommended to the steering committee, but ultimately, um, um, you know, they've done a really good job, I think, of staying more engaged with the class this year around their projects. Um, we've done a, a really great job, in my opinion, of taking what the class, you know, we ask when they are interviewed, what do you think that the current um, challenges and opportunities facing our, like the greatest opportunities and challenges. Cause you know, there's probably a whole huge list of them, but what do you think the most, the, the one thing is? And, um, and then we take that and compile it. And um, there was kind of three that really rose to the surface for this cohort, which was um, racial equity. Uh, it was COVID-19 and impacts on a variety of, of um, different things, including things like education and small business and recovery and, and um, but, you know, ultimately COVID-19 and then um, homelessness. So those were kind of the three big opportunities, challenges that this current cohort um, identified themselves. And so our steering committee has done a really great job um, bringing that into each class day. So how, how does, how is public safety impacted by those three things? How is economic development impacted by those three things? How is um, land use and transportation impacted by those three things? And so um, the steering committee has done a really good job this year, I think of, of kind of bridging those, um, those opportunities and challenges and, and uh, into kind of what our, our main bucket topics are, you know, which are things like land use and transportation and health and human services. What are some of the most significant programs or more significant programs that you got to experience in this process of developing other leaders and working with the Eugene Chamber? Um, you mean within LES or within kind of our, our chamber? Um, yeah, that's a 
That's a good question. I. Um... Well, for me, when I was in the program, we had River Bend under construction, so that was a big deal. Okay. About that, having this husband and wife communications team come forward and put uh, this concept or establish this concept of communication, you know, significantly more different. Uh, hearing more from LTD and the MX pro program we had going, learning about tr public transportation, we had the roundabouts being built at that time. There was a lot going on. So for me, as a member of that class, I got to learn about things that were sig significant in our community. Were there, what are some of the things like that that you've been able to experience? So one of the big things um, over the last three years that I've been involved with the, the program is um, the riverfront district between Eugene and Springfield. And so you can see the change because you know three years ago, we were touring the class through the steam plant over in Eugene. We were taking bus tours through Glenwood, kind of talking about development there. And then um, suddenly things started happening and we, we couldn't go to the steam plant because that's suddenly there's a plan for it. And um, I think that's really, for me, fun to see because I, um, you know, started a few years ago in this program. So I've gotten to see that, but um, for the class itself, um, you know, they're only together for, for eight months. Um, so this year uh, we did um, talk about Glenwood's development and hearing from the city around, um, you know, how they're procuring property over there and what the master plan is and why are you putting roundabouts in there? And, uh, how are you coordinating with Eugene? Because this is um, this is really a joint economic opportunity for our two cities. Um, so that's been, I think, really important. Um, you know, we get to hear from entities like the Eugene Airport about what they're doing um, in the community and kind of what's what's ahead. And so you kind of like a look, you just get a kind of a sneak peek ahead for what are people working on. Um, last month, we had our economic development day for the cohort, and uh, we had uh, you know, OB companies speaking about their new history development. So kind of learning about those big projects that are gonna be impactful for the next few years um, is really important. We had um, Carrie from Traveling County on the on the call too, talking about what does tourism look like for our community, um, you know, with all of the impacts from wildfires and COVID-19 and what are some what are some cool projects we're working on, like the track and the indoor track and field project that um, again will be really an important economic opportunity for, for our community. What are some of the other types of classes, if you, if you could, would you like to incorporate that have not, that the program has not been able to implement at this time? I think that one of the things, and this is really identified by the steering committee too, uh, one of the things that they would like to see implemented is more, um, not necessarily for the current class, but more to engage alumni back with the program. So um, it is interesting um, kind of comparing the experiences for me between um, LES and how it's run by the chambers and then Leadership Spokane and how it was its own organization because we as chambers naturally have a lot of um, opportunities for alumni to come back and engage um, you know, through our, our chamber programs. And yeah, you can continue learning about, um, you know, government issues and advocacy by joining our GIC committee, or you can continue to learn about economic development and have a voice in that through our economic development committees. And we've got our education committee. And so, um, especially because this is a joint program between the Eugene and Springfield chambers, um, there is a lot of natural opportunities for alumni to come back. But then again, one of the, I think, benefits of Leadership Spokane was that those um, you know, re-engagement opportunities um, 
were just for alumni. So you know those people also went through the program. Um, you've got some connections, you've got some common experience um, to, to kind of fall back on. And so um, it was a couple years ago, the, the alumni started a, a once a year um, alumni program. So getting all the alumni together just, just for a networking opportunity. And I think that's kind of a, that's a first step, but how do we continue to re-engage alumni together and um, continue to, to allow them to make connections amongst one another? Um, and then I think another, this isn't necessarily a class that we'd add to the, the current cohort, but another interesting opportunity to think about is um, youth leadership. So um, Leadership Spokane had a really great youth leadership Spokane program uh, set up very similar to how the adult one was, where they still get to learn a lot about the community. And I think those kinds of programs um, really help students stay, you know, future leaders in our community stay connected to this area. Um, we hear a lot uh, that one of the you know problems is the the brain drain from the from the city. So uh, if you don't feel connected to this area, there's nothing keeping you here. Um, and even when we're talking about university students, um, sometimes they uh, exist in their own silos. I know I did in university. I didn't um, I didn't know everything that Spokane was doing. Actually, I've learned a lot more about what Spokane is doing um, in this role now. Kind of you know connecting with um, the greater. Um, Spokane uh, Incorporated and, uh, you know, he hearing more about how they're connecting with um, healthcare partners and community leaders and, um, you know, the behind the scenes development that as a college kid, you are not exposed to. Um, but why not? Why aren't we exposing those kids to, to what's going on in our community and what makes it great? And how do we kind of keep them here so that we've got leaders who feel connected and engaged in the community? When I first returned from South Texas, I was asked to speak at the uh, cultural center there at the University of Oregon to their international students. And post uh, that experience, I received a flood of emails from these international students asking me to help them find work, to connect them with, help them make contacts with people or organizations that could help them find work or have uh, options or opportunities for job interviews. And so I was thinking at that time, I mean, the, the emails were unbelievable how many came in and the length from Chinese students and students from all over. And I thought to myself, how scary that must be to know that you're coming upon graduation and not knowing what you're gonna do next and you're in a, in a foreign land, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I um, I think not enough people take advantage of the, the assistance that's out there. So I think it's great that that many students are reaching out to you because you are, you know, a knowledgeable in any of the community who can make help make those connections. Um, but I see a lot of kids that don't. Um, you got to ask for it. You know, there's people out there, there's advisors out there, there's community partners out there that, um, that would love to help make those connections. You know, our companies are looking for talent and um, and if you're willing to, to ask for it, um, we'll help make those connections for you. Paige, what are, what are some of the things you enjoy about working with other leaders and what are the characteristics characteristics you look for in leaders? For the leaders that I really respect in this community, um, there's a level of thoughtfulness um, that they all have that I uh, 
that I appreciate. And that's kind of one of those um, traits that I see, um, you know, across, across everybody that I really look up to um, in this community. Uh, they are smart. They know, um, they know how this decision they're making is going to impact other areas of the community. Um, I think one of the scariest things we can do is make decisions in silos. And that is one of the, that's one of the most um, you know, important reasons behind this leadership Eugene Springfield program is that we're really breaking those down and we're saying, look, this is the whole, this is the scope um, of our community. And, and if you're making decisions in a silo, you're not making decision, the best decision for our whole community. Um, let me ask you a question. For those that are listening, could you explain to them what you mean? I know what you mean, but can you explain to them what you mean about not making a decision in this concept of a silo? Yeah, and I see this play out a lot too at our state level politics. You know, we're we're putting um, rules and regulations in place that have um, tremendous consequences for a lot of folks in our community. Um, even when we're just talking about taxes, um, you know, even if you re we really want to create, uh, we really want to create housing for people. That's great. Yes, we agree. We really want to fund schools. Yes, we absolutely really want to fund schools. Um, but then it's the decision about how are you going to do that, and uh, and putting just a like a blanket tax in place or or not thinking through the policy decision that you're writing. Um, has really big consequences um, when you're looking further down the road, those kind of ripple effects. And suddenly small businesses are paying $4,000 out of pocket um, to cover some of these expenses. Uh, and, and our policymakers aren't necessarily, that's, that wasn't their intention. Um, but if you don't know what the consequences of your decisions are, um, then we shouldn't be making those decisions. So you said thoughtfulness, people, that, leaders that are smart, uh, leaders that they know how their decision making is going to impact the community. What other characteristics? Knowing who to ask for what. So, you know, one thing that has become really abundantly clear to me is that we can't do it all. We can't know it all, but we can know who knows it. Uh, so being able to make those connections for people, I think, is a mark of a really great leader. Um, you're not you're not an expert in all things, and that's okay. Um, so knowing and again knowing kind of the the community as a whole really will help helps leaders um, make those connections and those decisions. But um, but knowing who the experts are and, and how to make those connections for people, I think, is a mark of a really great leader. Who are some of the leaders in your life that inspire you right now? I'd like you to name some of these people and why they inspire you. I would be remiss if I did not say that um, Vonnie is a really, um, she's been a really great mentor for me. Um, and she's a leader that I really look up to and respect in our community. Um, she is thoughtful. She makes, um, she doesn't make decisions in snap judgment. Um, she knows what is going on around the community and, and how, um, how we can best um, be stewards of our of our you know, resources and um, how to make the best decision possible for you know the the full business community and and um, she I think she's a really great um, leader that I look up to um, 
there's actually, you know, there's a, there's a lot of folks on our board, I think, who I really do respect as leaders in the community. Um, David Algarico is one at Mackenzie Willamette. Um, anytime you can come into a new community uh, and, and be in charge of, of that many people um, and, and have them respect you and the decisions that you make, um, and they're important decisions. Um, I think that's the mark of a really great leader in our area. Mark, I respect you and what you're doing. I think that um, that this uh, this Women Leadership Series, I think is a really, really excellent tool for showcasing some of the leadership um, that I see. And I'm flattered that you, um, that you asked me to come on here. I know some of the, some of the women you've interviewed um, are just really tremendous leaders in our, in our community. Um, and so it's, it's nice to be counted um, amongst them. Well, you've, you have the, this is the one thing about leadership that's super important. We have to validate other people's experiences. We have to recognize their experiences. We have to recognize that process, that developmental process, and help them put voice to it. The whole emphasis of this Women in Leadership series is not to necessarily have the most profound individuals in regards to achievement, but profound individuals in their development process, in their journey, in different phases of leadership. And I recognize your leadership. I mean, it is, you mark my words, anyone that watches this, five years, you're going to be one of those women in leadership that's going to hit a trajectory that's going to require you leave this area because of the opportunities that are going to come before you, and rightfully and justifiably so. And I want to use this opportunity for individuals like you, uh, for people like Danny, of course, for Vani. Oh, my God, she's one of the greatest leaders I've met in my life. And so uh, this is really important, Paige. You're, the best for you, for you is ahead. The best for you is yet to come. And I know I'm going to look back on this interview one day, and I'm going to be able to look you in the eye and say, I told you so. <laughs> Now, who are, what kind of books are you reading right now as a leader, Paige? So I, we read a lot because we have terrible internet out at our property. So streaming is hard. Um, <laughs> I, I read a lot of just kind of fun books, just to sort of, um, you know, es escapism, um, disconnect from work and, and worries and all of that. So I did just finish the Hunger Games series again. Uh, no, but for, for leadership books, um, this is actually a book Vani recommended, um, and we're about halfway through it, but the Team of Teams, um, General McChrystal book, and um, I'm sure you know who he is with your military experience. I did not, uh, but my uh, partner does because he's a former Army captain and so knows quite a bit about um, this kind of leadership experience. So it's actually been more fun for me, not necessarily uh, reading or listening, this is an audiobook. Uh, to the book, but just to kind of pick his brain on, well, is that right? Uh, what do you think about that? Um, who, who, what did that person do? Um, so, so hearing it kind of from his perspective too has been um, a really interesting uh, kind of dive into to what does, how does leadership in um, military uh, really translate into leadership um, in any organization? Um, and so I did, I, I actually, I asked him what his, um, 
kind of biggest takeaway from that was like, what, what does that mean? What does leadership mean for in the army? What's some, why do you use that method? And um, his answer was, um, and I agree, um, is that the people closest to the ground should be the ones making the decisions. So it's the kind of lowest man on the totem pole. Um, the person who is boots on the ground knows what's going on. They should have the final say in the decision. And I think that that's true for any organization. You have your leadership and you've got, you've got managers, but then you have leaders um, who are who are there to keep a look at that kind of 30,000 foot level. And um, they shouldn't be diving into the minutiae necessarily. It's, it's those people on the ground who know. And again, they're the ones who know how that decision is going to be impacting everybody else. They should be the ones making that decision. Yeah, I miss that. That's one of the things, Paige, I miss about military life, honestly, is the amount of leadership ability, now, the, just the respect that you had as a leader provide, given to you. Because I was, when I was in recon, uh, reconnaissance, we were 12 to 14 kilometers consistently above all the rest of the, in front of the rest of the units. And they would, I'd be out there for days with my reconnaissance teams. No one doubted my situation reports. No one questioned whether or not I was being accurate. If I made a decision about routes of advance or routes of escape or routes of movement, it was given high credibility because I was on the ground in that position and I could see it and discern it. And I, I miss that about military life where there was that, that sense of credibility. Yeah, and it's hard. I know um, just from talking to him, it's hard to transition to civilian workforce because um, depending on which company you're working at, that, that structure is different. Um, and you don't quite have as much uh, chain of command structure um, where people do. They, they know what you're doing and they know the decisions you make are, are good decisions and well-informed. And it's not always a given um, in, in general life organizations. Yeah. One of the big leadership adjustments for me when I exited military life, one of my jobs, they said, well, you're not, you're not eligible to get an office key for at least night for 90 days until you get through the probationary period. And I remember being shocked and this isn't a negative against anyone as it was just my experience. And I, t and I told the office manager, I said, you realize I had a top secret security clearance and started naming off all the things I was responsible for. And you're telling me that I can't have an office key. I was just having trouble understanding that, you know, and, and he, I remember the fear on his face, the apprehension on his face. I didn't mean to upset you, uh, Mark. I apologize. I said, well, I'm not trying to upset you either. It's just I don't understand this role reversal, so to speak. So it was tough. Now, Paige, what are some of the activities as a leader that you undertake to keep yourself focused, encouraged, and directed? Uh I like listening in on um, on what's going on. So even if it's not directly tied to my role in the chamber or my job, there's a lot of um, meetings and podcasts and um, webinars um, that that people are putting on um, with information and knowledge that it's it's critical peripherally speaking to the work that I'm doing. Um, but I think it's important to know what is out there um, so that I can make better decisions. So that's, that's one way. Um, 
maintaining focus, I think too, means you do need to disengage sometimes from work. So, uh, and I know that's really hard for folks to do right now um, if they're working from home, um, especially, but I think that us moving out into the woods has really helped um, us to do that for sure. We've got, um, you know, hundreds of miles of trails back behind our house. So being able to take the dogs up on a walk and um, just kind of get away from the internet and your phones and um, screen time and um, just kind of be out there. Um, it's really nice. I am learning um, a little bit about farming. Um, not <laughs> nothing big, but uh, you know, we're like learning how to raise chickens and looking at raising goats. And um, that's kind of one way that I stay engaged and learning new things. And it's been a, quite an experience. Are we going to have to nickname you Ellie Mae? <laughs> so far it's just chickens mark there's nothing nothing quite profound <laughs> the farm work that we're doing yet <laughs> Paige, what a journey what an amazing loving family and people that believed in you and supported you and encouraged you along the way even to the point that you're at right now who are some of the people you would like to mention and thank them for their support in your leadership and development journey I um, would obviously like to thank my parents, my mom and dad. Um, you know, my mom's watching right now. Uh, they, they really did. They um, gave me everything I needed to be able to make my own decisions um, and to be able to take advantage of opportunities. Um, and that really got me where I am today. Um, I would like to thank uh, Vani for being a great mentor to me and, um, for putting me in positions where I could learn and grow as a leader. Um, I, I think that that's been tremendously valuable to my professional development experience um, for sure. Looking back over these last several years to where you are at this moment, what you've learned what you're in the process of learning right now and developing right now. If you could paint a picture of the future just with that headspace of knowledge right now, what would that look like for you? What would the, what would my future look like or? Your future. That's, uh, that's a difficult question to answer. I always knew the answer to that when I was younger. I had everything mapped out. Um, I knew when I was going to graduate and what school I was going to go to and what um, my you know, career path was. I was going to do Peace Corps. I was going to get a job doing this. Um, and then suddenly you're at the end of that kind of 10-year plan that you made for yourself when you graduated high school. And, um, and I don't know what opportunities are out there. And I think that that's okay. I think that um, I'm going to um, I'm going to stay in this role and I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity that I have to learn more um, about working with businesses, about working with community leaders. Um, and if opportunities come my way that I can't say no to, then they do, but I, I'm not out there looking for them. Um, I think it's okay that I don't, I don't have a 10-year plan. Um, I like where I am and, and um, I still feel like I'm learning and growing in my position. Um, I think taking on more um, community leadership roles, um, you know, recently started on the city club board, um, which has been fantastic. Um, I think that could be something that I expand over the next few years too. Um, 
but I think it's okay that I don't, I don't have a, you know, a painted picture of what 10 years from now looks like for me. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today, Paige Sharp, Director of Development and Talent Initiatives for the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. Paige, thank you for your willingness to partake, uh, participate in Molina Leadership Solutions, uh, year-long project titled Women in Leadership. Uh, thank you for your example, and thank you for your devotion to the chamber, to the chamber, uh, to the membership, uh, to the ongoing leadership development of those that want to engage in that process. We wish you the best in your new home and hope you get better internet service someday. <laughs> Until then, keep baking. Uh, keep learning to farm. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for um, hosting this program and, and doing what you do for, for our community leaders. Very good. Have a very good day. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. Yeah, bye. Bye.